Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 223. This is part two, a recording of Leonard Ravenhill's message uh, entitled, Where's the Fire? Well, I've met a lot of stiff-necked people, so I watched it. Nine <laughs> feet above his feet. He's 19 feet tall. The female is 15 feet tall. She's pregnant, and watch, it was a rerun. And then the, the animal turned this way, and he said, watch, and she spread her legs at the back, and suddenly she dropped a baby, a little baby giraffe. From the mother's womb to the ground is five feet, and the little thing fell in the straw, and she looks around as though she's smiling, and, and the man said, this awesome thing that struck me so forcibly, she won't leave that baby for three to four hours. She'd lick it clean, she'd wait, and he said, now watch, watch. And he kept watching. Once or twice, it tried to get up, it rolled over this way, rolled over that way. Then finally, she put a hoof behind it very gently, and the little thing stood up, and she looked as though she's smiling, nodded her head. The little thing walked away. A giraffe will spend three to four hours with this baby. And yet you spent three minutes at the altar yesterday morning, asked somebody to fill out a three by five card and send them back to hell. They weren't born again in your night. But you do it every Sunday. Every card that they signed will face with a judgment seat. Why did you leave them? Why didn't you say, listen, I'll stay behind with you? One of the greatest priests in the world in my generation was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in London. I talked with him. Did not eat it on a Sunday morning? Well, I was preaching in Ockingay's great church, Park Street in, 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 uh, in Boston, and a young man came to me, and uh, he said, well, old chap, how are you? I said, well, old chap, I'm fine. How are you? He was English, of course, you know. And uh, I said, uh, what are you doing here? Why do you come to this church? I mean, there's all kinds of churches here. Why do you go here? And he answered like this, he had his Bible, he said, Mr. Raymond, when I come to this church, I need my brains and my Bible. Other churches, you need emotion. Where did you get saved? He said, I got saved in Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones Church in London. I know that I've been in there, Westminster Chapel, around the corner from Westminster Abbey. He said, a friend said to me, you're an intern now at St. Luke's Hospital in London. What did you on Sunday? Golf, of course. Go to church, church? <laughs> Nobody was listening to. He said, come with me to Westminster Chapel. The, the pastor there used to be the assistant to Lord Horder, who was a physician to the King of England. He's a genius. Come and hear him. And he said, I went and week by week I listened as this man expounded the word of God, preaching in Romans, and going out one Sunday morning, he said, Doctor, I'm concerned about my spiritual life. I don't believe I'm born again. Uh, could I see you next Sunday morning after chapel? He said, yes, sir. What is your name? Oh, I'm Dr. So. All right, doctor. I'm a physician. I'm a doctor. I'll see you at half past twelve, half an hour after Sunday morning worship in my office. And I said, what was it like? I didn't go. He said, why? He said, I was going out. The doctor said, oh, I know. You're the young doctor. You want to see me at half past twelve? No, sir. Well, you did. Has conviction left you? Aren't you troubled about your soul? Not a bit. Why not? He said, because, sir, this morning at exactly 11.15 as you were preaching, I passed from death unto life. 
You can't find your young people. They've been to the altar 50 times. They don't know they've passed from death unto life because they haven't. We think that salvation is for beggars and tramps and bums and harlots. It is, thank God. But going back to Wesley for a minute, he's got a man of impeccable morality, a scholar and a gentleman. And he gets born again of the Spirit of God. Then he wrote that lovely hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Remember the second stanza? Here is a man, he has no trail of crime. He isn't divorced. He hasn't lived in uncleanness. He's as clean as Nicodemus himself. But he writes in the second stanza, Long, my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke. The dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off. Listen, chains are chains if they're made of gold. Some of you haven't done a lot of lousy things, but you're chained just the same. You're chained to your grandfather's theology and it's as dead as he is. Some of you are chained to customs in the church. You're not free at all, but whom the sun sets free and free indeed. When Whistley got emancipated, did he know? He says, yes, at 24th of May, 1738, the clock was touching 15 minutes to 8 to 9, when suddenly I felt my heart was strangely warm. A Catholic theologian said he was having an epileptic fit. Well, I hope 50 of you have one tonight. No epileptic fit. It transformed him. It brought him to America as a missionary, so he lay down in the forest in Georgia, went to sleep and woke up frozen to the ground. Had to pull one leg free, then pull the other leg free, then pull his arm free, pull his hair out of the mud, and then brush the snow off, and raise his hands and sing the doxology. Our preacher would come home and tell you how heroic they were. Send them to California for a month's holiday or something. This man goes on in weariness and painfulness. Why? Because he's been miraculously transformed. What is salvation? It's the life of God in the soul of man. When men come in my office, I say, tell me one thing, do you know God? Well, I, I didn't ask you that. Well, let me ask you another question. Does Christ live in you? Well, I was saved. I didn't ask you that. Does Christ live in you? Have you a new nature? Have you new habits? Have you new desires? Have you new language? Have you new interests? Have you new vision? If any man be in Christ, any man anywhere at any time, he's a new creation. Do not how rotten men are, how sinful. Well, let me hurry. I've only two hours left. Okay. So here you have this man, Elijah. Go hide thyself. He doesn't quarrel. He doesn't say, please send Elisha to come and help me. He stays for three years in solitary confinement, walking with God, talking with God. I believe he saw visions we don't know thing about at all. Doesn't uh, Jesus say later in the Gospels, your father Abraham rejoiced, I see my day. Where did he see it? Come on, let me go a minute here. I'm hopping up and down, I know that. But wait a minute. Here is a man. And the, the, the soldiers are turning every sod over. They're looking behind every tree to try and find this man of God. Okay. He's got Ahab. He's got Ahab digging a pit for his feet. He's got the wicked Jezebel, the essence of everything that's diabolical, breathing down his neck. There's a price on his head. He hears men hollering, keep going, keep going. They're looking for him. 
they'll stab him to death or tear him apart. Do you think in that crisis moment that that man ever dreamed he'd stand on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Do you? I don't. You see, God doesn't lay all the prizes in front of us. If I could push the door of heaven open an inch and put, let you see in it tonight, you'd never backslide, you'd never lose your fervor, you'd never lose your vision, you'd never get selfish and cantankerous, you'd never be whining because you're not enough clothes to wear, enough things to eat, we don't seem to eternity. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, so he turns his back on all the, all the wealth of the greatest nation in the world. Okay. Elijah stands on the Mount of Transfiguration with all the angels looking on and all the demons looking on. There is Jesus in all his majesty. And this is the little man that was running in front of Ahab. This is the man that stood before the thousands of hundreds of priests. This is the man that called fire from heaven. This is the man that raised the dead. Don't you think that few minutes he had with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration eclipsed everything in his life? What about Moses going up the hill? His garments are torn. He's been running after sheep so often. He's sick to death of eating the old, same old meat and stuff every day. And now he hears a noise in the valley. It sounds like thunder. It isn't. It's the children of Israel murmuring against him because his sisters turned her back on Moses. His brother, who's supposed to be the high priest, has led people into nakedness and dancing and sin. And Moses is crushed. He's left behind the wealth of the greatest empire in the world and here his brother fails him, his sister fails him and everybody in the valley is grouchy about Moses they're not getting the right thing. Do you think at that moment he ever dreamed that one day in eternity that whoever conducts the music there Gabriel says stop a minute we're going to sing the hallelujah chorus better than Handel ever dreamed of it. And the whole creation joins in the hallelujah chorus. Then it says, wait a minute. We're going to sing something more glorious than that. What are we going to sing? And there's Moses standing with 50 billion people. And suddenly, Gabriel says, there's Moses. Listen, Moses, I know you had it rough. You got out of Egypt. You were terrified. But listen. You enjoy the hallelujah chorus? Yes, so we'll listen now. We're going to sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. What will it be like? You think they're worrying about his blistered feet? You think they're worrying about his brother who backslid? You think it'll be about all the priests that failed him? Of course not. There's a hymn that says, The eternal glories gleam afar to nerve my faint endeavor. So now to watch, to work, to war, and then to rest forever. You know, it's going to be glorious. I hasn't seen or ear heard, but God has revealed it to us. If we walk with Him, sometimes I, I go to bed at nine at night. I get up at midnight usually. About some nights I've not been in bed at night. My feel the bed's burning. My heart's are full of joy and ecstasy. I go in my office. My sweet, precious Martha, come at two o'clock and say, "Lynn, are you coming to bed?" Oh, I won't be long. You always say that, she says. I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> Cheer up, dear. <laughs> And then I maybe spend another hour. Do you know I'll tell you what? I believe, Brother Basie, only the last five years has Christ become as precious as to become. I've never seen things as I see them now. We live, we're so earthbound, we so see the things that are seen, that are temporal, not seen, eternal. 
Okay, here's a book called Take Your Glory, Lord. Uh, where's... Bill, you had a copy of this. Did you give me a bag? You did, you sure? Because I couldn't find it today. I didn't think you sold it. But listen, I'll tell you why I have this. You can't buy this. I won't sell you this for a hundred dollars. Try me with a thousand. <laughs> and I'll give it to missions. Do you know what it's about? It's a little black man. He went into a meeting in, uh, in Spartanburg. And I told this story in Spartanburg. And there's a big fellow at the back and he's doing... Mm-hmm. You know, somebody wound him up. Coming after the meeting, he said, listen, I enjoyed what you said tonight about Duma. I said, why? Have you heard the story before? No. I haven't heard it. I was there when it happened. What? A little black man comes to the altar in a church in South Africa. Going out, the pastor says, Duma, can I help you? Mr. Sir, can I help you? He says, no. Oh, yes, 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 yes. He said, give me a church. What? I've never seen you before. What do you want? Give me a church. What do you mean give you a church? Oh, he said, you're the little black man. Nails at the front, aren't you? He said, no, I'm not. He said, you are? He said, no, the else wears clothes like that. Blue shirts with a chalk stripe. That's one of the dignified pieces of cloth they wear down here. You're the black man at the front. He says, I'm not. He said, you are. He said, I'm not. He said, what do you mean you're not? He said, the man that went to the altar died. I'm a new man. Sounds like we got saved the old-fashioned way, doesn't it? He said, I'm a new man. Some weeks after he went and he said to the, pa- the pastor, Oh, you're the man that wanted a church, yes. Where have you been? I've been away for five weeks. Where? He said, you told me you couldn't give me a church. I walked up the road. I found a path in the forest. I followed the forest path. I went to a stream. stream. I, found a, I found a cave. I put a mark on the cave. I stayed there 21 days and 21 nights and said, Lord, you make it very clear to me if I am to be a preacher. And he said, the Lord, after 21 days and nights, said, listen, you're called to preach and you're called to heal. That's pretty hard for a Baptist to take, isn't it? It's far better to let them die. People say, our pastor doesn't believe in healing. I say, I saw him in hospital the other day at a woman's bedside. What was he praying, Lord, take this woman's life quickly? No, the church is praying for it. You don't believe in healing. Be, be honest about it. Okay, okay. So what happened? Duma went round. The sick were healed. And before, he raised the dead. People ask me, do you pray for the dead? They say, no, I preach to them. He prayed over the dead. I told a famous, world-famous preacher who lived a mile away from me, I said, you need to read this. He read it. I said, what do you think of it? He said, Len, I can't take it. Why not? He said, it's not documented. It's all right. He said, Miss Coolman said that, but a lot of things she couldn't document. He said, that story of Duma has been stretched. Okay. Two years ago, a man knocked at my door. And I said, hey, good to see you. For the moment, I didn't get who he was. Then they suddenly realized he's a famous evangelist from South Africa. And I've forgotten his name, my dear mother's way. I can't hear you, sweet. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. Oh, thank you. Roger Vogue, thank you. Roger Vogue. I said, by the way, Roger, uh, did you ever meet a man called Duma? He said, William Duma? I said, yes. I said, listen, I've got a book here. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He did wonders. 
But a very world famous preacher won't believe that. He said, I'll tell you something greater than that. He did in my family. He said, greater than raise the dead? He said, yes. He said, a month before I left South Africa, that's two years ago, my daughter presented me with my first grandchild. What's miraculous in that? This is it. There was a knock on the door. I went, there's William Duma. Oh, Brother William, what are you doing at my house? The Lord told me in prayer last night, get on the overnight train. He'd come hundreds of miles because there's somebody very, very desperately sick in your house. He said, yes, my daughter's lying on the floor. We signed a paper. The doctor took a third of her brain away. And uh, she's lying like a vegetable. She can't even make spittle for her own lips. And uh, <coughs> she's a vegetable. I want to pray for her. He said, all right. He went in and prayed. Nothing happened. He went in and prayed. Nothing happened. He went in and prayed again. Took her by the hand and said, rise in the name of Jesus. And immediately life came. And she became whole. Became so whole with a third of her brain moved. And I said, what about this book? He said, I'll tell you the name of the hospital where the dead person was raised. I'll tell you the name of the atheist doctor who saw it. I'll give you every specific you need on the raising of the dead. But more, he said, when I see my daughter that was destined to death, that lay for months like a vegetable, gets pregnant, raises a gorgeous baby, what do you do? You don't give any credit to medical science? God intervened. God doesn't need to intervene for us. We've got to plan out where we'll go. We don't get people delivered. We send them to the psychologist. The guy himself needs deliverance. We've got so many crutches today. I want to see the God of Elijah come in majesty and come in glory. And see these awakenings again that stop the traffic. Uh, if I were to ask you, and I'm going to hurry. If I were to ask you as the greatest preacher... Amongst the Baptists, I guess most of you would say Spurgeon. Well, he wasn't. Here's a new life of John Bunyan, just put out by uh, the Banner of Truth. I think it's the best edition ever on his life. Do you know what happened to John Bunyan? John Bunyan was an illiterate man. He was a tinker. He used to come around in England with pieces of metal and repair your pans. You know, pans were all made of uh, tin then. They put a, a patch on it. And his parents were like that. So here is John Bunyan. You say Spurgeon was the greatest soul winner. Do you know in all the years that Spurgeon was in London he never once made an altar call? He said after Sunday morning service, if you're troubled about your soul, come and see me in the morning at 7 o'clock in my office. In the evening service, if you're concerned about your spiritual condition, come to my office at 7 o'clock Monday night. And people stream in all day to see him. What do you do on Sunday and Mondays? Gloat over your preaching? Get up in the morning, say to people, if you're disturbed about your soul, I'm your pastor, I'm more disturbed. I have to answer to God to the judgment for you. So Spurgeon never made an altar call. Spurgeon isn't known as a preacher, and he was, but he's a man of prayer. I knew a biography that is out of him. I didn't bring it with me. Do you know what it says? Brother Bracey, I thought of this. 
he says he was so convulsed in prayer he would pray and sweat before going on the platform the deacons had to get him all of his arms and open the door and push him on the platform and some days this mighty man of God would say I'm totally unworthy to preach I shouldn't go and preach this morning you don't do that do you look at the wall and see a diploma listen fellows there's something you can't wear with a degree or a diploma Saturday morning a man called me from the other end of America he said I've just got a copy of why revival tarries I'm reading chapter 3 and you say there with all your getting get unction what is unction? I described to him about the anointing of God the Greeks talked about the afflatus and the nimbus that the anointing of God is far beyond the afflatus of an orator or the nimbus it's some divine mysterious finger of God that comes the greatest preacher in England in the day of John Bunyan the illiterate man who was the greatest preacher he was the king preacher of all the Puritans by the name of what? John Owen there's a brief sketch of this on the back of word sketch the greatest preacher in England was the vice chancellor of Oxford University King Charles II would say I have celebrities coming from all over the world tell Dr. John Owen to be here at one o'clock tomorrow to preach and every time they had celebrities they sent for Owen do you know people went to him listen to this dear God you have to tempt people and beg them to come to church you know they did in the days of the Puritan 2,000 people went to hear John Owen in the morning, Sunday morning and there was no mass communication they walked in the snow and got wet through and they sat on benches they had no padded seats and they listened for two hours dear God our people can't listen to any of course they can watch a football match two hours they can go and watch opera all night last year in, in Wimbledon, England titled ladies were sleeping out in the street at the side of the tennis courts to get into the court they're not concerned about the court of the king of kings but these beautiful dressed stylish ladies could speak half a dozen languages lived in mansions came by plane and train they wanted to see an exhibition of tennis and they lay all night dear God you can't get people to your church for a half night of prayer if you came the heat on and give them free sandwiches and all the rest we've no hunger for God and until we're hunger for God hunger for holiness hunger for righteousness the talents will still be filled and jail. people say Mr. Raymond you don't realize every Sunday morning every church in America almost is filled I say listen wait a minute I'll kill you with your own I'll take your crutches and eat your head off with them you tell me they come Sunday morning for an hour do you know the jails in America have filled every hour of every day for a year not one hour on Sundays every day your people don't care the nation is damned oh they'll sing with a hand on the heart so did those guys that have all gone to jail that got all that money and spent it up on the uh, what do you call it in the stock market the guys who were doing all the inside trading millions of dollars they sang my country to of thee and all the wretched rhetoric and it didn't mean a thing don't you sing where the whole realm of nature mine you won't give up an ounce of anything for God you see we've got mixed up you go to a Bible school you go to a seminary in Dallas or Fort Worth why? to learn to know your Bible forget it you don't need to know your Bible you don't need to know the word of God you need to know the God of the word 
Elijah didn't know the word of God. There wasn't one. He knew the God of the word. And he never moved until God said go. God says go hide thyself. He hid himself for three years it says. On the third year it says in the 18th chapter. And then what? God said go. Go what? Go show yourself to the king. The king's going to kill me. Well you'll see. He doesn't care a hill of beans about that. But going back a moment there. What does it say here? The great Puritan vice-chancellor of Oxford University, John Owen, was told by King Charles II, Why do you so frequently? You're a man of scholarship. When he went to the king's presence, he had a red scarf round his neck and a yellow scarf, denoting all his distinctions in his degrees. He was a Hebrew scholar. He was a Greek scholar. He was a philosopher. He was a historian. And here he goes to a beggar of a preacher that murders his English. The king says, Dr. Owen, I heard of thee in his old English that thou dost go and hear that babbling Baptist very often preach. Doctor, why do you go? He said, Your Majesty, if I could preach like that man, I would lay all my robes at his feet. He has something scholarship hasn't given me. He has something history hasn't given me. He's something that's mysterious about him. People stand and weep. John Gunning could preach two hours and people would tremble under the power of God. They don't tremble anymore. Demons tremble when they hear about God, but our people don't. But I'll tell you what, when Holy Ghost conviction comes, they will. Let me go back a minute to Spurgeon. When Spurgeon got older, they asked him, when were you saved? I was 15 years of age, and for seven long weeks, I was under conviction of sin. That's a boy, under conviction of sin. He never smoked a cigarette. He'd never been in a dirty movie. His life was clean. But he knew there was a distance between him and God. I came to Jesus Christ as clean as any man that ever came to Christ. I lived in a strict Methodist home. I had a praying mother and a, a praying father and a singing mother. It was wonderful. And the thing that brought me to Christ was this. My daddy loved his Bible. I didn't love my Bible. My daddy loved to pray. I didn't want to pray. My daddy stood at the street corner and witnessed. I didn't want to witness. It wasn't what I'd done that troubled me. What I hadn't done. I hadn't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. Listen, many of you are not prodigals wandering away from God. You're rebels. You won't let God rule your life. Elijah went and showed himself to Ahab. I'm going to restore this now. I want to just hold on to one thing here before I wind up. You've got all the armies. Isn't it an amazing thing that uh, at the end of his trip, uh, Elijah says to the king, You bring all the people of Israel before me. Isn't that stupid? What do you mean? Everybody in Israel hates you. Look at them walking. They're lame. They've had no food for three years. They've had no new clothes. They're weary and they're worn. You're asking to be assassinated. He said, I don't care about that. All I care is I want God to be vindicated. And so they bring all the people trudging along the road, hungry and tired. And the judgment, the the proof is this. As you know, Elijah says, get get the... Prophets of Baal to come, and there are 800 of them all together, and he's alone by himself, but one man with God is a majority. You say, what can I do? Do you know this week we celebrated 50 years from World War I? 
when Hitler was scorned in England they said that little German has Charlie Chaplin's moustache on his lip he's insane we don't need to fear him, he made the whole world shake just one man what a fanatical idea and he made the world to tremble in our day the Ayatollah Khomeini he was in prison in France for 10 years the Shah of Persia had the largest air force in the Middle East, the largest army, the largest collection of jewels, sitting on a peacock throne. There he was, here's a ragged Ayatollah, living on bread and butter. He hardly had anything, he sacrificed like Gandhi did. Gandhi hardly had anything he owned his own. He lived on bread and drink and water. He sacrificed so people follow him. Can you find an evangelist you want to live like today? Why do you need million dollar homes, million dollar swimming pools, million dollar jets? Well, they look ridiculous at the judgment seat. Read the back of your Bible and see where Paul went without any train or plane all over. Four missionary journeys that are standing and in prison all because the power of God motivated him. Okay, let's get these people. They're all lined up. And Elijah says, come on now, you can have the first try. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. Now you try. So the priests stand there, they beat their breasts, they shout, they scream, and they're there till the sun's going down. And Elijah gets scornful, he says, well, call on your God. Maybe he's gone shopping, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's on a vacation. Somebody once said to Dr. Toz, you're pretty scornful at times. He said, so is Elijah and so am I when it comes to mocking the priests of Baal. You say all that we see around him grows to Ashtoreth and to Baal. They're all in America today. I looked at the 17th and in England too. I looked at the 17th chapter of Acts today. What does it say there? It says that when Paul went up Main Street, and where was it Athens? He saw the people... It says they were worshipping what? Strange gods. There were Epicureans and Stoics and philosophers and poets, and he marched in the middle of them and he talked to them about the resurrection of Jesus and the judgment day. But he said when he looked round and he saw the streets were lined with temples to false gods, it says in, in the English, King James Version, his spirit was stirred. Uh, Philip said in his translation he was exasperated beyond endurance that people could give their money to strange gods I told a man not long ago went to the Middle East what happened he wanted to go in the mosque they said sir you can go in the mosque when you grow a beard you've got to prove you're a man we don't let women in number two it's a sign of your dedication to your God he said Mr. Rainey I went through the Middle East you talk about prayer meetings If we don't get a revival of praying, if we don't concentrate in prayer, your children will be praying in concentration camps in America. And it will happen in your time. What happened when he went to the mosque? Crack of dawn, he couldn't get in. 3,000 pairs of shoes outside. Every man is down on his face before he's gone. Staying there for two hours if need be, listening to an address by the Ayatollah, saying how great Jesus Christ is. No. 
how great Allah is and yet one man says the greatest sermon I ever had on Jesus Christ was by a Mohammedan saying Jesus Christ is beyond all these other leaders of religion I heard this recently of a man who got saved he was a I tell you how he got saved his wife was a wonderful Christian he was still a Mohammedan and she talked to him about the Lord and in mercy God came and visited him in the night he had a dream and he went to heaven and he said when he got to heaven he said to one of the guards there I want to meet uh, Allah Allah doesn't live here he said alright show me Muhammad he doesn't live here he said who lives he said there Jesus Christ the son of God and he said in my dream I saw Jesus Christ and I realized Allah isn't in heaven and Muhammad isn't there that Jesus is there and it changed his whole life but you see God isn't going to give us visions like that he's revealed himself here in his word Okay. we skipped over one event there that must take me a minute here remember what happened this, this, uh, this man Elijah uh, the Lord tested him by the brook Kirith that wasn't a nice stream it's a dirty stream and he fed him with a raven that raven didn't go and steal uh, Philemon off the table of the, of the king the, the, the raven is a carnivorous bird it went to carcasses it went to old bodies and ripped pieces of flesh and brought them to the man of God and brought him bread and he drank water of the stream but the stream dried up first the natural always dries up before the supernatural and there he was the stream had dried up then when God has tested him in hiding go hide forget everybody else break rank get three years with yourself dear God in eternity I'm going to ask him what did you learn those three years it's going to be awesome he had a thousand revelations God would let him reveal to us in the three years of obedience it's obedience that will bless us nothing else until we get into line with the will of God okay so then after he's proved himself God says go to a widow a widow? who wants to sponge on a widow apart from TV evangelists? But you see, he says, I've commanded the ravens to feed thee there. I've commanded a widow woman to feed thee there. And as long as you're in timing with God, you won't die and you won't starve. I've commanded the raven to feed thee there. He goes to the widow and says, make me a cake. I've only a handful of meal, a drop of oil. And I put them together and she made them. Put them together. Then what? He's three years in a cave she's three years making donuts and fancy meals it's, it's rough you know when you pray and get somebody else out of bondage and leave the Lord leaves you in it <laughs> that's a test of faith isn't it ok that was good thank you <coughs> but wait a minute he scored when he went and hid he scored when he went to the woman there and now he comes and uh, he's coming to the most critical thing of all because our God is a consuming fire notice it doesn't say the woman went to the door and said get the town crier go all over town and say listen this is a man of God he raised the dead that's our business your business isn't to make people clever in your church it's to raise the dead check and see how many of your deacons are born again how many of your Sunday school teachers are genuinely born again did they take time to be all holy did they feed on this word or are they doing it by rote every child they teach they will face at the judgment seat 
This is an awesome thing. No, they didn't run around and say, this man has proved his identity because he raises the dead. He says, bring all the nation to, and the God that answereth by fire. Come on. Our God is a consuming fire. The most gorgeous building ever built in the history of the world was built by Solomon. He used gold to splash on the walls and gold on the floor and gold on the desk. It cost multiplied millions, maybe billions of dollars. He dressed the priests up in their garments. He slew thousands of oxen and thousands of sheep. It's the greatest show on earth. There's never been anything to equal it. And then what? The priests are there in their robes. The others are playing their instruments. The people are all gaping and wondering what's wrong. And he says there's just one thing missing. Oh yes, we've got the sacrifice, but there's no fire. Let God of heaven come down and fire came down and vindicated the call of that man. When God was leading Israel, he led them with a pillar of fire. They needed water. He could have sent a river to follow them, but he didn't at that time. He sent a pillar of fire. Fire is the most destructive thing. Listen to what it says. That when this man cried and said, said, let the fire come down, the fire came, even though it saturated the sacrifice with water, he sac- the sacrifice was, was saturated, but the fire came down and consumed it. But more than that, it says it ate up the sacrifice, it licked up the stones, it ate up the dust, it ate up the water. In other words, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. I got a letter this morning from a very wonderful president of a Pentecostal church and he said, thank you for your note to me, please. Would you pray that I may have a new baptism of fire? I need the fire, I need the fire. That's what the church needs today, the fire. Scholarship on ice, give it to the ducks. Scholarship on fire, yes. Wesley had a genius of a brain and he got on fire. Listen to Charles Wesley, says, O thou who camest from above the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze, and trembling to its source return in constant prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to walk and speak and think of thee. Still let me guard the holy fire. Brother, I think when he was singing tonight, said, Many of us, we haven't lost it. You didn't lose your first love. You left it. You left it purposely. Some of you spend far more time looking in the lousy, stinking TV than you spend with God. And you sing, we're the whole realm of nature, man. Forget it. We, we've changed from knowing God, the word, the God of the Word, to knowing the Word of God. Listen, you don't get too far just knowing the Word. You've got to know the God of the Word. And what does Daniel see? The people that do know their Bibles? No. What does he say? The people that do know their God. We don't know God. You don't know the God of the New Testament. You don't know the God of the miraculous. They stuffed you in some stupid seminary. A seminary without the fire of God is a sepulchre. I don't care how much Greek you know. We never had a more learned pulpit in America. When I came to America in 1950, there were only about 50 doctors in the place. Everybody's a doctor now. Does it scare the devil? Of course it hasn't. 
It's when we begin to burn with compassion, burn with love, burn for a lost world. Oh, you shout Amen. Listen, if God the Holy Ghost starts telling you right now you're spiritually bankrupt, don't wait till the end, get up and come and kneel here and cry to God. I don't care about the meeting being broken up. The meeting, God doesn't have to wait till the end of the meeting to get you to decide whether you'll take deity into your being to consume everything, okay? Let me go to Edwin Hatch. He wrote one of the most lovely hymns I think ever. I, I sang it 80 years ago in England. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou wouldst love, and do what thou wouldst do. Fill me, fill every part of me with praise. Let all my being speak of thee and of thy love, O Lord, poor though I be in me. Um, to think of the other verse of God. Breathe on me, breath of God till I am wholly thine till all this earthly part of me glows with thy fire divine what did this young man who knows his Greek and Hebrew do you know what he did? he was saved in a Baptist meeting years ago and he became zealous testifying then he decided to go for a scholarship and he climbed up the rung until he got his PhD and he's a brilliant doctor now but he said Mr. Rainer I lost my anointing so did some of you guys before you leaned on your authority and leaned on your psychology and leaned on your degrees, you used to pray and weep. I spent a month preaching in the greatest Baptist church in the country, maybe. And that covers over Mr. The man that's coming tomorrow night, I think, Dr. Christmas. I spent a month in the pulpit of Dr. Stanley Church, Dr. Stanley, in, uh, in Atlanta. I prayed in three Saturday nights, he lay on his belly there, weeping and groaning and travelling, sent revival to my church. Sunday morning he preached till the sweat ran off his nose and off his chin. And uh, I said after Charles, Jeremiah couldn't have lamented over his nation more than you did and wept for it. And he was constantly crying that this holy fire might be upon him. The fire has gone, our churches are cold, there's no burning compassion for the lost. We sit in church and sing. What do we sing? Let the earth hear his voice. How? One way you prove you love God, you're obedient to him. And he says, go into all the world, not into all the churches. Get in the street and preach. Let them see you're burning with a holy love. Let them see he's transformed you from selfishness and self-interest and self-seeking and self-glory. And you're consumed from senators' conference with the fire of God. Breathe on me, breath of God. I love that great old hymn. One other thing, I was preaching in Ireland years ago. And behind me was a picture of a woman. It looked like my mother. She had a, a lace collar and uh, lovely hair as I went in the church they said do you know who that picture is I said no somebody very beautiful it's Amy Wilson Carmichael you remember she founded the Donovan Fellowship she got a one way ticket to India and stayed there 35 years she had a curvature of the spine the last three years of her life they lifted her in and out of bed every day she wasn't playing tennis like you wasn't doing exercises to roll the fat off before TV that woman worked herself until 350 children over and over again she got replays of 350 and they became saved 
and went out to India to witness and, and this is what she wrote here's a frail woman weighing 95 pounds give me a love that leads the way a faith which nothing can dismay a hope no disappointments tire a passion that will burn like fire let me not sink to be a clod make me thy fuel flame of God do you see what it's saying? she wanted to be fuel for God's fire to burn out and then she blazed out for God fire I'll tell you once the fire of God touches you you'll never forget that God may have to do the same with you he did with the three Hebrew children they went in the burning fiery furnace what happened? all that happened was the fire burned off them what the world had put on them they were strapped but the fire set them free you've been saying Lord set me free do you mean it? are you absolutely sure tonight? you want the fire to come in that life of yours? here's the last thing the horrible backsliding of these preachers in the last three or four years has brought an avalanche of criticism and bitterness and ridicule on the church of the living God you know I don't care that much about it I care for them I weep I groan that men claiming to be filled with the Holy Ghost can be led into such rotten sin but wait a minute it's not what the world says about them that troubles me you know it hurts me about the church in which I live and you live it's what Jesus said about it listen stuff your mind in the back of your mind get rid of your pre pre-tribulation theory or your post-tribulation theory or your mid-tribulation theory here is the church that Jesus Christ bled for in get, uh, agonized in Gethsemane for and he bled on the cross for it as the hymn says with his own bloody bother and for a life he died when you've got rid of all your theories of the uh, post and mid and pre-trib most of you will agree I asked the class that we had last week or the week before do you believe we're living in a Laodicean period yes the church is laid back what does Jesus say about it listen it's his criticism it's not John writing it's not a critic writing Jesus says of his church this last phase you and I are in she's poor wretched naked blind miserable and thou knowest it not wait one minute our young princes in England all want, all want to get married in Westminster Abbey and when they go they have a naval uniform on it's got about eight gold buttons they have a sword with a gold handle three thousand of the greatest people in the world kings and presidents, scientists are allowed to come into that abbey which seats three thousand people you're three thousand of the choicest people in the world so called socially and uh, the man up in the organ right above the altar at the front says listen how will I know when the bride comes to the door because there are, there are men six trumpeters there and they'll give a blast and immediately they blast you start on that organ here comes the bride here comes the bride so here's the fanfare and the guy up there said oh this is the moment of my life I trained for years to play this multi-million dollar organ here it is it's a royal wedding and he starts here comes the bride and just as he does there's a woman there at the front she's got some artificial wedding clothes she bought in a junk shop and suddenly she jumps in front of the prince that's coming down the aisle and bears herself throws her clothes off she's stark naked and stinking 
And the policeman gets hold of him and says, Hey, you wicked woman, what are you doing? She said, I'm the bride, I'm the bride, I'm the bride. Come on with all your theories of the return of... Is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming for a bride that's dirty and lame and blind? Answer. Well, then we have the revival of holiness. He's not coming for a filthy, lousy bride. And you claim you're part of the bride. Which means at this very moment Jesus Christ can come because at this moment and every business transaction today you're conscious you're wearing a snow white robe of his righteousness. Every day you live more for his coming than for business. Every moment you, he's not going to give you a moment to get changed. He's not going to give you a moment preach to get rid of those dirty magazines you have. He may come at the moment you're watching that dirty show that you watch when your wife's gone to bed. Listen, there's no praying, it's all going to be caught out. He's not coming for a dirty bride. There has to be revival of true holiness. And the only way to holiness is purity. What did he say to the disciples? Ye shall be endued with power from on high. And suddenly there was a rushing mighty wind and it sat on each of them. And there was a cloven tongue, the symbol was fire. The symbol of Christianity is not a cross, that's a Roman cruel thing. The, the signal of true Christianity is a tongue of fire. The day of Pentecost came, that babbling tongue of Peter's was so mighty, they began to cry out, here's the difference. Read the third chapter of Luke, when Luke was preaching, and remember it was the Baptist who first preached the baptism with the Holy Ghost. And while he was preaching, it said what? The people cried out. He went on preaching, the Pharisees cried out. He went on preaching, the publicans cried out. You see, evangelists make an altar call, revival people make the altar call. They cried out, what should we do? We can't stand this. We can't go back to our ritual and formality. We've seen spirit anointed men. Oh, then leap over to one other thing. The day of Pentecost was fully come and Peter, he isn't running away from a woman pointing a finger. Peter is there, anointed of God. And what did the people? The people cried out again, what should we do? What should we do? Listen, preacher, the best thing you could do for your church is to get some hellfire preaching and not make an altar call for a month. People are used to altar calls. They gear themselves for it. Either they come forward easily or they ignore it. You get to the place where they start ringing you up at night. I can't sleep. I'm not right with God. I'm not a true... I'm not a true Sunday school teacher. I'm not a true deacon. I'm not a true witness. I'm faking it. Listen, he's coming in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. If he comes 50 seconds from now, will you be taken? He's not going to give you notice. He's not going to give you time to memorize a few scriptures. He's not going to give you time to pray. He's not going to give you time to get right with some people that you hate. He's coming for a pure church. There will be a very, very small remnant inside of a remnant when he comes. But that's who he's coming for. I don't believe he's coming for the whole church. For the simple reason Paul says, If by any means I may attain to the rest, by any means. What do you mean? The man has built more churches, written more epistles, seen more miracles, raised the dead. And he says, If there's any way I can be in that minority, I want to be there. I'm going to get it whatever the cost may be. And it's going to cost that. It may not cost you anything to get right with God. It costs you a lot to stay right. Cost you opposition. Cost you ridicule. 
Well, I'm going to stop now. I want our neighbors tonight who really left your first love. You didn't lose it, you left it deliberately. You read other books more than you read this blessed book. You talk with people more than you talk with God. You're more stiff and starchy about your position as an elder or a deacon or a preacher or a preacher's wife than you are about your relationship. There's one thing will revolutionize your life. When I came to the altar a second time, you don't believe in a second blessing, okay, that's your business. I'll tell you who did, Spurgeon did, Dr. A.J. Gordon, over on the East Coast, believed in a second blessing. Find a book, it's called the, uh, what's the book called, The Famous Christians? No. Pardon? Yeah, yes, yes. I forget the right term, but it is, it's, uh... oh, thanks, thank you. There's a man knows his Greek. Deeper experiences of famous Christians, every one of them. George Fox had an experience of God, but he couldn't keep sweet. Listen, don't you think you're going to live a normal life if you get filled with the Holy Ghost? The trouble with our church is you can predict everything. The Holy Ghost has a chance. In the office on Wednesday, they planned what the whole God had to do on Sunday morning. Stand up for this hymn, sit down, the choir will sing, Miss Jones will gargle to music, and then we'll have a few more things. Forget it. The New Testament church was totally unpredictable. You know, we're going to get back to the place where there are churches where no man dare join himself. That if you're living in duplicity, immediately walk through the door, you'll drop down dead because you're a hypocrite. It's going to come back. Don't pray for the Holy Ghost to come if you want normality. He shatters normality. He's totally unpredictable. The first time you go in a Holy Ghost meeting, you'll say, God, where have I been the last 20 years? You'll go home and you won't sleep. You'll go home, you won't want to eat. You'll say, I can't stay like this. I'm sick of this wretched state I'm in. My eyes never have any tears. My heart never burns for a lost world. My country's in siege to the devil now. Every day there are more people in America spend more time reading horoscopes than reading the Bible. We've more witchcraft in America than we've ever had in our history. And yet the church is normal. That's hypocrisy. I want to go home and get with God. Say, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get quiet with God. And I won't get into bed until I know tonight God has baptized me with the Holy Ghost. He can burn up all my habits. He can burn up everything he likes. As long as he brings purity and as long as he brings holy energy and he brings holy power. It's going to take that to move our generation to God. Would you stand? Father, we thank you tonight for your presence. I'm sure you've spoken to many hearts. Lord, I ask you to make the next five minutes a tragedy to the devil. I pray people get rid of fear, fear of man, fear of consequences, fear of death and the judgment. Because at this moment you're going to ask, 
they're going to make a pledge that before they get into bed tonight, man and wife will kneel together and say, Lord, burn up every dross, every bit of dross in our lives, burn away our emptiness, empty us and fill us, strip us and clothe us, baptize us with this fire that will give us a passionate love for souls and help us walk in purity till Jesus comes. I'm going to ask you with your heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm not asking you to come forward. I want to know so I can go and pray for you. I'm not going to drive home now. But you say, I'm going to, I mean business with God tonight. I'm tired of mediocrity. I'm going to move into a new sphere by the power of God. I promise you tonight I'll go home and I'll get quiet with God. And I won't get into bed until I know God has really cleansed me and anointed me with the Holy Spirit of God. Will you do that? For God's sake, raise your hand. Thank you. Dozens, hundreds, score. Lord, I, this is your fruit, not mine. Lord, I expect to see a new anointing upon ministers and deacons tonight. That, Lord, this weekend men will preach as they never preached in their lives. They'll have a passion and compassion, a mighty anointing in the Spirit. Bless the next speaker, I pray in Jesus' name.